0: People in public health tend to communicate that really strong message very poorly. People who um, are anti-vaccination tend to communicate that very poor message very well. You know, the way that I always, you know, try and uh, explain it is, you know, pro-vaccination groups have this, you know, this, this, you know, Mercedes that they're just trying to give away and no one will take it. And, you know, the AVN has this old clapped out Gemini they're trying to sell for half a million dollars and people just slap it up.
1: The Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network has been operating since 1994 with a mandate to protect informed vaccination choice and provide scientifically sourced information on this complex and difficult issue to our members.
0: Uh, So, my name is John Wardle, I'm from the Faculty of Health at UTS.
2: And how is this information presented?
0: way you want it, basically. So one of the interesting things about anti-vaccination material is that there's a very, very broad spectrum uh, of anti-vaccination. So that if, if you want something that looks quite science-based, you can find that on the internet quite easily. The following
1: report of 2015 figures shows that infant mortality rate is higher in the United States than in 49... Though the mechanisms by which vaccines damage are not yet fully understood, the connections that independent research have found between vaccines... This vaccine was trialed on approximately 21,000 individuals, none of whom were followed for a long enough period of time to determine whether or not there were any side effects, which arose weeks rather than days after vaccination.
0: And in fact, our research has shown that um, a lot of people, when they look at vaccine information, they actually think the anti-vaccination material looks more scientific than the pro-vaccination material. And a lot of this is because public health material really is aimed at being as accessible as possible. So it won't include detailed scientific information. It won't include um, footnotes and references, whereas the anti-vaccination material will. Immunisation is the most
3: significant public health intervention in the last 200 years, providing a safe and efficient way to prevent the spread of many diseases that cause hospitalisation, serious ongoing health
0: conditions and sometimes death.
2: So what sort of emotional appeals are they using?
0: Uh, Case studies and stories.
4: I became aware that something was wrong with the vaccinations when my first grandchild, Amanda, almost died after having her triple antigen injection back in the 1980s. I was babysitting at the time and I put her into her bed, a healthy baby, and sometime later went into her bedroom to put away some nappies and her breathing sounded like a death rattle. I actually ran to the doctors in my swimmers and I've often wondered had I not gone into her room if she would have been yet another so-called cot death. That was back then when they actually admitted the dangers, unlike now.
0: People don't make decisions based on numbers. They make decisions based on stories. You know, some of the stories that are actually on, you know, the vaccination sites are quite, you know, emotional. You know, there are a lot of sick children out there. You know, linking that sort of emotional attachment to vaccine injury is, is quite a powerful tool. And just, you know, uh, the, the living memory of You know, the the diseases we vaccinate against are pretty horrific, but we haven't seen them for a long, long time. You know, you hear things like tetanus. You'd hear stories from the 30s and 40s of people who had friends who were in in school, they jumped off a fence, hit a rusty nail, and those kids were dead in two (laughs) weeks. So um, I think we kind of forget that those stories exist. Since the introduction of vaccination for children in Australia
3: in 1932, deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases have fallen by 99%. Despite a threefold increase in the Australian population over that period, worldwide, it has been estimated that immunization programs prevent approximately 3 million deaths each year.
4: This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leiter. I'm Shane Anderson. What you just heard were the two sides in the vaccination debate, one with information taken from the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network website and the other from the Australian Government's Immunisation website. Type vaccination into
2: Google and you get over 63 million results. If you knew nothing about vaccination, you might click the link for the Wikipedia article and then scroll down and read a few government websites. But scroll down to the bottom of the page, and this is the first page of Google, remember. There are two anti-vaccination pages. How might
4: that change your thoughts on vaccination? You can see, read, and hear more information than ever before. And we are really struggling to sort the fact from the trash. Today, you'll hear how we've created the perfect storm for creators, consumers, and even scientists to misinterpret and misapply information. But before we get there, back to the anti-vaxxers. You heard John Wardle say that you see the signs of autism around the same time kids are getting lots of vaccinations. And autism is one of the big conditions that anti-vaxxers point to as proof vaccinations are harmful. John says this is a classic case of correlation and causation. Just
2: to recap high school science, correlation is where two quantities increase and decrease together – But just because two quantities have this relationship doesn't mean
4: one is causing the other. Correlation doesn't imply causation. There's a great website called Spurious Correlations that connects two data sets to prove this very statement. My favourite is the per capita cheese consumption in the US, which correlates with the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets, both strangely increasing over time. This is a definite case of correlation and not causation, otherwise I have a lot to be worried about. <laughs> but back to John, who says that once the link between vaccinations and autism is in your head, it's a difficult one to shake.
0: So, uh, you know, there there is that sort of um, correlation that's very easy to turn into a causation when, once you establish that emotional link. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, we actually don't know what causes autism. Um, probably uh, the thing that's been examine the most about what can and can't cause autism is probably vaccination. There's been hundreds of millions of dollars spent on, you know, examining that link after the whole Wakefield thing. And, uh, you know, strangely enough, we can, you know, the thing that we can probably, the only thing that we can actually probably say definitely doesn't cause autism is now is vaccination.
2: We'll get into that whole Wakefield thing a little bit later on in the show. What John is saying is that for some of us, our scientific literacy isn't that great. And hey, I'll be the first to admit I did have to double check what causation and correlation was before recording
4: this. And this is part of the problem when interpreting data. We just don't have the skills to identify what's a good study and what's a bad one.
0: Well, health literacy and scientific literacy and uh, education level is, you know, they're very different aspects. So, you know, they, they might have a university degree in engineering. That doesn't necessarily make them good at understanding medical science. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and vice versa, you probably want to get, wouldn't want to get someone who's qualified in medicine to build your house. So education doesn't necessarily automatically dictate health literacy or the ability to critique and analyse different articles So um, and, and other resources that people actually find.
2: Our inability to critique coupled with an environment that is filled with misinformation has led us to this place of confusion and division. We've created the internet which is meant to be democratic and give everyone a voice and there's plenty of great examples of when the internet does achieve this purpose. But it also enables false information to be spread either accidentally or deliberately and we're just not wired to pick up on it.
3: The issue is that... People are not necessarily very good at reconciling competing information. They don't necessarily pay attention to the provenance of sources, so like where stuff's come from, or the kinds of experts that are producing some of this.
4: This is Simon Knight, a lecturer in the Connected Intelligence Centre at UTS. Simon says we're all guilty of doing something like searching Google for a topic and not going beyond the first page. And what's on the first page isn't necessarily the best info. Just look at what happened when we searched vaccination. Not only that, there's been research about people repeating the same
2: misinformation and us believing it.
3: So there was a really nice study out fairly recently, I think, from uh, Lisa Fazio. And they showed that if you just repeat a lie, even if people know that the information is misinformation, They're more inclined to believe it because it's been repeated. And that's really worrying.
4: We can have some fun with that. Eating more cheese makes you more likely to suffer death by bedsheet. Shane, did you know people who eat cheese are more likely to die by becoming tangled in their bedsheet? Ellen, do you know how to avoid dying from becoming tangled in your bedsheet? Eat less cheese. You get the picture. Do you believe it yet? (laughs) What's worrying is that not only do we believe
2: information when it's presented to us multiple times, if that information is presented from a small pool of quote-unquote facts, well, that's what we're going to hear a lot of and start believing.
3: Particularly in the case where you have a relatively small number of people actually having quite a lot of influence and repeating information from a relatively small number of sources, which is the case with... With climate change, I think it's a really good example. Whereas other types, uh, so people who would disagree with them, people who believe in science, they're more likely to be repeating information from a wider set of sources. But that may not actually make any difference to people's belief in, in that.
4: Meanwhile, when we have massive amounts of data and evidence proving vaccination and autism aren't linked, or that climate change is real, Because there are so many different facts proving this conclusion, and because different people are saying different things, we don't engage with it as much. And to be frank, this is how we end up with
2: something like the vaccination debate, where we're worried that there's this whole chunk of the population who don't vaccinate, when really it's only about 2% of Aussie children who aren't vaccinated because their parents object to it. There are other reasons why children aren't vaccinated, such as access to healthcare, that explain the gap in vaccination rates. We've just zoomed
4: in on this entirely unnecessary debate. But if the anti-vaccination debate has shown us anything, it's that data doesn't automatically equal facts. Data is just information. It doesn't mean anything on its own. It's all about how you interpret it. And for that,
2: we need to go one level up. After the break, how even researchers are struggling to interpret data.
3: Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon, and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health and subscribe.
4: Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. We've just looked at the problems the public have understanding research, but even the people we trust to interpret the information and communicate it are struggling. Researchers are humans too, and sometimes they can bring the same assumptions when it comes to interpreting data that, say, an ordinary citizen would reading a report about climate change. Think of your phone records. A researcher could interpret that to say that you made
2: five phone calls today. But what it might not show is that in the afternoon, your phone battery ran out and you made a call from a payphone, or you made a few phone calls from your work phone, or that you
4: called someone through Skype. That mistake isn't the data. The data was just showing the outgoing calls from a phone. The mistake there was the researcher assuming that you only contact people in this one way. Mark Moritz is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Ohio State University. He calls this data problem the streetlight effect.
1: It's a story, but it's about a drunk uh, looking for his keys at night. And somebody comes by and asks, what are you looking for? And the, the drunk says, I'm looking for my keys. And so where did you lose them? Well, I lost them over there at the other end of the street. And the person the passed her by asked, why did you looking here then? The drunk says, I'm looking here because the light is better. And so it's easier to do your research when the light is better, but it's not necessarily the right kind of data to answer your questions.
2: People are always tempted to take the easy option. And not just because you're drunk or you're a lazy researcher. Things like
4: grant funding and deadlines get in the way too. This streetlight view of data doesn't necessarily create the kind of glaring inconsistencies like the phone example either. Mark says it can have an impact in more subtle ways.
1: Schools are studied by lots of researchers. And it's nice because kids are all in the same place. You can all study them in one setting. But if you want to know why some kids are doing well in school and others are not doing so well, it's not just what's happening at school, but also what's happening at people's homes. And of course, it's much more difficult to do research in people's homes. Schools are easy to study. You can collect lots of data and you can come up with all kinds of solutions that only work in schools. But it's just as important if you want to understand why, why, for example, inequality in the United States is so persistent. But if you don't do anything about the, the, the problems at home, then those policies that only happen in the school have little effect.
4: So when you focus on easy data, you're not necessarily getting the whole picture. The data on its own doesn't always match up to people's realities. Correlation doesn't
2: equal causation. It's so strange that something like this can happen when academics is
4: all about, you know, rigorous analysis and peer reviews. Well, these very structures are in place to stop this from happening, but when a piece of research slips through the cracks, it can have a huge impact on our beliefs. The anti-vaccination movement got a huge boost from a study published in the journal The Lancet. The scientist behind it was Andrew Wakefield. He's
2: basically the Elvron Hubbard of the anti-vaccination movement. John Wardle explains.
0: Wakefield was a was a physician who in the UK who who'd done a lot of work actually around immunology in children and autism before, and he published a case study taken up by The Lancet, looking at the physiological changes associated with the MMR vaccine.
2: The streetlight effect was Wakefield's first crime with this study. The streetlight shone on 20 children alone, and in narrowing his study to the link between vaccinations and autism, he failed to look at other influencing
4: factors, like the environment or paternal age. Not to mention some of his shady links to a vaccine patent of his own. Needless to say, Wakefield's study was discredited and he was struck off. We wouldn't be talking about him if he wasn't.
0: There were all sorts of ethical problems associated with that study. You know, people always talk about big pharma influence in vaccine studies. Andrew Wakefield actually had quite a strong financial interest in actually showing that this link occurred because he had a patent to another vaccine that he was trying to introduce instead.
4: What's probably most significant about this study was that nobody could replicate the findings. This is huge in science. The whole point of science is to figure out the laws underlying things like patterns of autism. You have to be able to replicate an experiment because if other people can't also prove the link, then it doesn't exist. But Andrew Wakefield wasn't struck off as a doctor until 12 years
2: after the original paper was published. And by then, the anti-vax movement had found its pseudoscience legs.
4: There is another way people's beliefs can be skewed by misinterpreting data. And this problem is more about practicality than shady connections. Ellen, when you were doing your undergraduate degree, did you ever take part in medical or psychological research? No. Did you? I did. I took part in many, from psychology to economics to medical studies. As a student without much cash walking around with, this was a good way to make a quick buck. But isn't that a problem if your sample size is just students? Exactly. An anthropologist called Joseph Henrich noticed that actually a vast majority of studies in things like psychology and economics were undertaken using undergraduate students as the guinea pigs. Henrich realized this was having a huge impact on those academic fields because so often psychologists and economists assume that their findings about human behavior reflect the greater society. Mark explains.
1: Joe Henrich and his colleagues show that no, actually, uh, people in the world are very different from the West. People in the US are very different from people in Europe. And undergrads are very different from most Americans. Undergrads are basically weird people because they're unlike any other population on Earth. And WEIRD is an acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies.
2: Undergraduate students are weird in both senses of the word. When you're at uni, you're responding to all sorts of different social and economic pressures. And you're probably doing things completely differently to the way
4: someone in their 30s, 40s or 50s would act. And this problem is amplified in the digital age.
1: The same problem happens with uh, the big data, the weirdo problem and it's the same thing but it's the weird people that are online and so we assume that everybody is the same but the Twitterers are n- unlike most of the rest of the, of the world and so they're not representative of humanity. Nevertheless, when researchers work with Twitter data they often assume that everybody who uses Twitter is like, is like everybody else in the world.
2: So everyone needs to be careful about the kinds of assumptions we bring to us when it comes to understanding data.
4: This doesn't mean you should make an angry call to your nearest university department. We're not saying everything in a textbook is false. Right. One view that anti-vaxxers and climate change
2: deniers have in common is thinking that academia is spreading misinformation for some kind of ulterior purpose. But actually, we should think of expert knowledge as a work in
4: progress. It's a conversation. Some theories are wrong and others change over time. This knowledge might not be much comfort to people struggling with information overload. In fact, we might have made things more confusing. How do we navigate this huge mess of assumptions and bias and the multiple ways people can interpret data? If even the experts are getting caught up in it, how do we know who and what to believe? We're not going to leave you today completely empty-handed. In fact, you're going to get a little bit of homework. The first thing is a refresher on how to validate sources. Remember doing an annotated bibliography for essays in high school and uni? Those skills are the same skills you need to apply to any information you read, especially if it's controversial. Here's Simon Knight again.
3: So trying to corroborate the information that we find, um, if we find that there are opposing views, trying to understand why. Like, what evidence are people using? Uh, What credentials or expertise do they have to put forward that evidence? How are the arguments structured? Like, does it actually make sense? And paying attention to those source features. I mean, you know, the most basic one is just, when was it published? (laughs) Because things go out of date. And having an awareness of the sort of, the certainty of these kinds of claims over time uh, is, is pretty significant as well.
2: The second thing is to get involved in what's known as slow search. Think slow food, but for what you're feeding your brain.
3: Um, and that sometimes, actually, we should want to take our time and really try and understand the depth of a problem and get lots of information.
4: That's it. We're hereby giving you permission to spend hours absorbing yourself in one topic and reading books and journal articles to truly understand it. And to spend
2: time thinking about what you're learning and analysing it. None of this Google it and have the information
4: fall out of your head 10 minutes later. Despite all this information at our fingertips, there's still something to be said for knowledge. Don't underestimate that computer between your ears. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibiter. I'm Shane Anderson. Thanks to the University of Technology Sydney and to ser for supporting this show. We're in the
2: process of changing over our website at the moment so we don't have a catchy web address. And against everything we've ever told you, just Google Think Digital Futures and you'll find our website where there are links to past shows and more info on what we've spoken about today. Thanks for joining
4: us. Bye for now.